0: Welcome to another episode of Daily Horror Habit, the podcast for horror obsessives. I'm your host, Jay Krieger, bringing you horror movie reviews and discussions every Friday for your twisted pleasure. And as always, be warned, these reviews and discussions might include spoilers. This week kicks off Body Horror Month here at Daily Horror Habit, and where better to start than Clive Barker's directorial debut, 1987's Hellraiser. Adapted from Barker's own novella, The Hellbound Heart, Hellraiser follows the sadomasochistic impulses of Frank, who produces a box that unleashes interdimensional beings of pain and pleasure known as the Cenobites. But upon escaping their grasps and literally losing his skin in the process, Frank convinces his old lover, his brother's wife, Julia, to kill for him to help revitalize his body, sending them down a rabbit hole of murder, desire, and sadism. And joining me to chat all things body horror and Hellraiser is returning friend of the show and the host of one of my favorite horror YouTube channels, Sledgehammer Horror, Mr. Ken Sledge himself. So without further ado, Ken, welcome back to the show, man.
1: Hey, thanks, man. It's such an honor. When you hit me up, it was just one of those things where I was super excited to come back and join you again.
0: Absolutely. You know, you and I, I think, are very much cut from the same uh, horror cloth as it were. And uh, I'm really looking forward to with you about this film that, you know, the first time I saw it, I kind of I had this idea of what Hellraiser would be and it ended up being something so very different than what I was expecting that I it didn't necessarily like click with me the first time I saw it and it's a film that I've gotten a great appreciation for I think over the last I don't know three or four years and kind of revisiting it casually kind of getting a better understanding of what Hellraiser is but I mean for you what makes Hellraiser a standout amongst its uh you know, the bevy of, like, kind of 80s horror icons.
1: Uh, so pretty much what you just said rings true for me as well. Uh, growing up, I was a huge slasher fan. And, you know, you go into Hellraiser, all you hear about is Pinhead and the Cenobites, and you're like, oh my god, this slasher is gonna be so great, and it's totally not a slasher at all. And so the first time I watched it, I'm with you, I was like, it's kind of like, it's like a love drama wrapped up in a, you know, little bit of a slasher film, but uh, as I've gotten older and I've been able to get away from genre films, I really, really love this film. Um, the score's great. I love that the Cenobites are almost minor characters throughout this film. Um, and it's just, my thing is, like, it's such a beautiful story from every aspect. There's so much love in this story. Um, and Kirstie is one of my favorite Final Girls of all time, so. Um, I am definitely ready to talk all things lament configuration, man. Like I'm so stoked oh. about this.
0: <laughs> very nice, <laughs> Kenza uh, holding up the uh, the prop from the movie. That's very cool. But you know, it's interesting because I felt the same way in terms of like growing up and not growing up in like a necessarily a horror household a lot of my horror knowledge came from sort of like those top 100 scariest movie type compilations that would come on Sci-Fi Channel or AMC during the uh, October and whatnot. And so I would see glimpses of it and I'd be like, oh yeah, I assume this movie is being mentioned within the same breath as, like you had said, lots of other slashers from that era. But then when I actually sat down to watch it, I was like, well, this isn't a slasher at all. Like, yeah, there's killing in it and there's gore and stuff, but this doesn't feel like a slasher movie. And that's because by all accounts, it really isn't. Even nowadays, I wouldn't consider it to be one. And to your point, like it is very much this almost like a a horror noir film, right? It's very much about love and the relationship between characters and how that can either be uh, manipulated or perverted and whatnot and what that ends up leading these characters down. Um, I'm curious, did you ever read um, The Hellbound Heart, the novella that it's based off? I didn't. Um, It's one that I really,
1: really want to watch. Well, especially because <clears throat> they are doing a remake of Hellraiser this year, and it's more based on Hellbound. It's more based on the novella than even the original film was, um, because the Cenobites are asexual in the novella. I know that much. And they actually cast a transgender woman to play the the lead of Pinhead, whose name isn't even really Pinhead. It's just the lead Cenobite, but... Right. Um, in this first film i'm very excited to see how they take this in the direction of the novella and it's something i still want to read it's on my definitely on my list but like i said growing up i i I only got into hellraiser really hard probably the last year and a half two years um because i watched it as a kid and i was just like this it did like i'm like you it didn't do anything for me and i had that bad taste in my mouth and then a good friend to both of ours josh was like hey dude you need to rewatch this fucking film (laughs) and like that's what really put me on the path to watch it again and a lot of appreciation for what the film is what it's doing and especially with the body horror like we're here to talk about like the body horror in this film is just when you asked me about body horror this was one of the first things that came to my mind like this is the one we got to talk about because it's so so great the the practical effects in this movie are so amazing and so well done
0: yeah, absolutely. Um, I only brought up like the novella because if anything, the novella made me appreciate the film more because, and you know, it's, it's cool to see that uh, obviously Barker was able to, you know, write a novella and then actually direct and write the film himself. And, you know, going through that process of like working with I'm sure various people in the studio and them coming back and saying like, well, you need to like reel in some of these elements and things like that. It actually made the film tamer, for me in a way that made me appreciate it more. Because I remember when I first watched the movie, I was like, well, this is like a little too sleazy for me and just kind of weird in some of the places it goes down. But then after reading the novella, I'm like, well, actually the movie is fairly tame compared to that. (laughs) Um, But I agree with you totally in that. I'm really excited to see the direction that they take the new movie. And you know, uh, notably, it's from David Bruckner, who did um, The Night House and he also did um, uh, The Ritual. For netflix yeah. which i'm two films i'm a huge fan of so yeah i would love to see his take on it and just see how they're able to maybe have a little more freedom to kind of like lean into elements of the books and things like that that they couldn't back in the day right it was probably more of a gamble that they even made the original film when they did make it and they got to keep in so much of what was there but um in terms of like the body horror stuff you know for me i was a i was surprised i guess when you suggested hellraiser for body horror because it was a subgenre i didn't necessarily associate with body horror before but on mm-hmm. this rewatch, like i rewatched it the other night it totally is and it's something that i really picked up on picked up on a lot of those elements so for you like what body horror elements are super memorable for you in hellraiser
1: oh when he rises when he when he first comes back when uh she kills the body upstairs and the blood starts soaking into him and you can see him coming mm-hmm. back when he's up in that attic and i remember as a kid it totally grossed me out like it was like wow this is really really rough you know because i probably watched the movie when i was like six or seven years old um so a lot of the sexual stuff went over my head but <laughs> yeah. that stuck with me all these years like when you're watching that skeleton form and even when he's just nothing but you know the blood and like they kiss and stuff you know it's like oh my god what the what the <laughs> hell are they doing? but that that first scene of him regenerating is definitely i mean i know that's probably not the most popular i'm sure that jesus wept is probably the most popular body horror image in the film which is easily one of the best scenes in the film but that first regeneration for me really kicks it up you're just like now we're rolling we're ready to go now
0: yeah absolutely i mean it's so funny that you mentioned that because Uh, on this rewatch I was like everybody's so wet in this movie like (laughs) I feel like for the first like third of the movie with even if they're not doing anything like well obviously when Frank's in the rain yeah he's pretty wet but like it's such a uncomfortable atmosphere for the entire beginning portion of the movie and you know really throughout the entire movie but like going from just that and then going to like Frank's rebirth essentially which really like I saw a lot of parallels um, compared to like the fly or something mm-hmm. like that, where it's like very goopy. You're seeing like bit, of course it's in the reverse order this time, but it's like seeing right. somebody essentially like being rebuilt muscle by muscle uh, vessels and all and yeah. whatnot um, is such a fantastic, not only like practical effects and whatnot, but also just the stop motion to get that to play mm-hmm. backwards. And like you had said, the attic when it's soaking up all that blood, like the house itself almost seems like it's coming alive in a way yeah. um, that I just really love. and. It makes for something that, again, it's it's kind of like out of nowhere, essentially at that point in the film, because like the film early on is like pretty restrained, right? Other than yeah. you know, you see a lot of it's implied, right? When Frank gets killed by the Cenobites initially, you see his face is sliced up on the table, but you don't actually like see that act happen. It's very much implied, like oh well, you see the chains fly out, and then you see the glowing from behind the floorboards and the walls and everything. And I have a great appreciation for that and the restraint that uh, Clive Barker had for his first movie. Like, think about how many first-time directors are like, well, I've got these cool-as-fuck monsters. Let me just show them throughout. Yeah. But, like, he has a great understanding of horror as a storyteller in a way that I was really blown away by with uh, Hellraiser on this rewatch. Mm-hmm.
1: And I, like like you said, you've got the Cenobites. And you he could, could have easily overused the Cenobites in this film. But he, he, like you said, he had that restraint to know, these are my minor characters, you know? And to watch, obviously, as the franchise goes on, you get more and more of the Cenobites. It actually becomes more of a slasher as the franchise goes on. But man, these first two Hellraisers are just... And the second Hellraiser is probably my favorite in the franchise. Hmm. And the body horror in that one as well is done just as well. And there's more of it. But the first time you watch Hellraiser... You're just, I I was so blown away on a rewatch as an adult. Like, how did I not love this as a kid?
0: (laughs) Well, I think it's for some of the things that you've mentioned, like a lot of the the sexual elements and things like that, like as a kid seeing it, or, you know, it really goes over your head and whatnot. And it's probably that type of thing where you're just watching and you're like, you're uncomfortable during some of those moments. And then Mm -hmm. it's funny, my experience with it and, you know, revisiting it as an adult, I still feel uncomfortable watching the movie, but it's not about around the sexual aspect. It's more about the um, the identity and the personality of each of the Cenobites, right? Which, for me, is really where the body horror element kicks into, like, high gear, because each of them has their own sort of body disfigurements that are tied to their personality, and yeah. you know, only two Cenobites talk out of the four, you know, Pinhead and um, the female Cenobite, yeah. and the other two, even though they don't do a whole lot in the movie. You can derive a lot. Yeah, Chatter and uh, Butterball. Yeah, he's yeah. so creepy. I love it. But it's great though. I think that you can really derive a lot about them without them saying anything. And that's just from their practical work and their, uh, you know, the body disfigurement that they have gone through over the uh, centuries that they've been these beings.
1: And I, I can't imagine the amount of time it took every day to do the makeup and prosthetic oh effects on every. I mean, I know that the lead female centipede. The actress that played her didn't come back for the next film because of how much hard work and prosthetic work that it was it was just too much for her and that's really unfortunate but and like you said pinhead which i don't mean this in any weird or disrespectful way to the character in my opinion when it comes to looks he's probably the least interesting of the Cenobites. you know obviously when he's when doug bradley does the talking you know demons to some angels to others you're just like okay I'm, in, I'm sold you know what i mean like you got me dude but when you look at butterball the chatterer like they are so much more intimidating in my opinion um and don't wrong, i love Pithead. obviously the viewers can't see this but I love him to the point to I took a Halloween skull and created my own pinhead with oh. nails, you know, very cool. Hammered nails into this <laughs> Halloween skull just to make mm-hmm. my own pinhead. Like that's right. how much I love these films. And um, as the franchise goes, after you get to about five or six, you know, you get to the point where it's like, okay, we, you know, what more <laughs> can you do? Obviously, right. let's send him to space. But um, mm-hmm. <laughs> this first one, I really think a good thing is um you and i have talked about our opinion on remakes before um but for a younger generation that has never seen hellraiser these remakes can really be beneficial because now they'll go back and rewatch the first one and the second one and the third one so maybe we'll start to get a bigger cult following of a franchise that already has a huge cult following for the people that have never heard of hellraiser
0: yeah absolutely i think that's a ton of potential in that and it's you know they did uh, i believe it was called books of blood for Hulu, right? And I believe Clive uh-huh. Barker was uh, involved in that, which was a series of, I think it was uh, an anthology horror movie that basically dabbled in three short stories that are from Clive Barker's uh, own sort of like back catalog of books and whatnot. Okay. That It was just interesting to see them go in that direction where it was something that, and I didn't see it myself, but it was interesting to see them go with one of his less mainstream works, and then It's the type of thing where even though most people probably don't know that our hardcore horror fans, like, oh, that has anything to do with Clive Barker. It would be interesting to see though, like if the new Hellraiser, to your point, is able to generate this kind of like fandom or fervor again around this IP that some don't even know exists or some have kind of like not thought about in a while because it's been dormant for so long. All of a sudden you start seeing people going back and watching that or going back and watching any number of the sequels and whatnot and then Who knows that could inspire like the next generation of horror fans or creatives themselves and whatnot but one thing I wanted to come back to that you said that I think really rings true is um is pinhead Almost being like the more restrained, you know coming back to that being more restrained of the cenobites but if anything i'm appreciative of that because I think if he looked like any of the other three or specifically like chatter and butterball it would almost be too distracting when he's giving these fantastic lines yes. of dialogue and I mean Doug Bradley does such a fantastic job and I'd forgotten how little he is in the first movie like he's yeah. only in three or four scenes maybe and he's not talking for that longer monologuing for that long and yet he is this iconic figure in the medium of horror in a way that you know he's more iconic I think than some others that have had their however many sequels but it, those other icons sometimes are more about what they do rather than what they say. Right. And it's such an interesting contrast, I think, when you go back and you start thinking about other, you know, I, I say slasher icons because he gets clumped in with them a lot, even if we yeah. are of the opinion that, you know, it's Hellraiser is very much his own uh, horror animal, as it were.
1: Well, and, and something else you just brought up, too, like the he talks so little in this film, but the things he says are so memorable, whether it's, you know, demons to some angels to others or you know the angry will tear your soul apart like these things you're just like oh damn okay yeah. <laughs> you know like all right that's a I feel you you know like when Kirsty's trying to let him know like this guy got away from you you know and like the confusion mm-hmm. and anger that he has with him is just uh oh. but you're right though like they needed him to be the less distracted of the bunch because if it was chatterer giving us all these lines I think we would more remember chatterer like we do now chatterer the character rather than any lines of dialogue that he has and is it chatterer or butterball that was the kid at the end when you see the reveal of him i think it's chat maybe that's in hellraiser 2.
0: i think think it's hellraiser
1: yeah where you get to see that he was like a little boy and it's just like my god this is so dark man
0: well, that's I think that's why now I really do associate Hellraiser with being body horror in a way that I didn't before. And it's more tied, maybe for me, it's like more tied into the thematic elements of the movie and the how that really like bleeds into the characters and whatnot more so and you know, of course, like the Jesus web scene, which is quite literally body horror, they're ripping him apart. And we're not yeah. in in the most gory, gruesome fashion imaginable. But You know thinking again just about like how specific everything on each of the cenobites is to that character and it's really personified through frank in a lot of ways right because you meet frank and he's just like this this skeevy sweaty dude who's like yeah i'm just gonna like do as much drugs and drink as much as i can and just bang my way through all seven continents but then realizing like there's people out there that fall prey to this idea of like they want to find more or something like that. And then seeing that literal manifestation and seeing what these Cenobites, whether by their own will or by the hand of another, do to themselves. And you just get the semblance of like who they were in a past life almost. Yeah. Without actually having to be told that. And I think that's really cool that you can kind of derive a character's history, no matter how disturbing or bleak it is through just the way they look but we don't have to have this long monologue. I don't know, I'm just further more impressed with Clive Barker as a storyteller, and that, you know, there's maybe some elements of the first film that I don't necessarily think have aged that well some, at some points in the movie, but overall, like, his ability to tell a story and convey so much discomfort, and yet there's so little gore in the movie, yeah. but then those moments where there are, like, they're so much more memorable, I think, than a lot of slashers. To be honest, like, when you think about some of those other slasher icons and you think about the first two or three films in those series, there's only ever, like, two moments maybe that are, like, really in-your-face kill-wise, right? Of course, all those movies have strengths in other areas, whether it be mood or score or atmosphere and all these things, but, like, every moment of violence in Hellraiser, it not only feels personal to the characters, but it feels very memorable, whether it be the gore or the way it's shot and whatnot. I mean. For you, what are some of your favorite moments of uh, gore or kills in the movie?
1: Oh, I, I I still think one of my favorite scenes ever is when it's revealed that Frank killed his brother
0: and oh, took yeah, it, absolutely. literally took his skin.
1: <laughs> you know, um, that, oh my God. Like when you, when Kirsty realizes it and the heartbreak that she's feeling for them then to, you know, the hooks to come out and they're literally pulling his face apart and as underrated as it is man this after he says jesus wept and he does the lick lip like, they got so creepy and scary Cause, you know he's looking right into her soul and what we gotta remember is he's being overly sexual to her and that's his niece you know like like this is your niece man like this is your blood niece and this just goes again to show how dark and disgusting frank was not only in life but in the afterlife but um Another is when you have all the true love that she has for Frank to Mm -hmm. be killing these guys upstairs, you know, inviting them for sexual uh, activity and then taking them upstairs and murdering them with a hammer so Frank can eat them and start (laughs) the the regeneration process. Wow, man. Like, you're watching this and you're just like she she puts his nasty, bloody finger on her mouth. Oh, God. It's so (laughs) gross. Like, But it's it's gross in an awesome way. And they really nailed it with hell, especially like I said, Hellraiser one and two really nailed what it meant. Well, Clive Barker, just like Candyman, you know, he knows how to mix romance and horror and make it work very well. So that's another thing for me, is just how well the romance and horror are mixed in this with that body horror element. It's such an underrated body horror movie. Like I said, not just the regeneration and uh the jesus wet scene but what we were talking about earlier little parts of the movie like when he first gets that taste of blood because the dad cuts his hand on that nail and bleeds in the uh attic and like you first get that scene like we're starting off with you'd get cut by a nail <laughs> dripping blood everywhere about to pass out because he's looking at his own blood but mm. that's how this whole thing starts and it's just it's amazing clive barker What this is a film that I think the reason they're still just like Halloween, just like Scream, they're still going to do a remake of it because it's going to sell and it's going to work because of the original story is that great,
0: yeah. And uh, you know, again, like David Bruckner being the one to helm a Hellraiser movie has me so excited because I mean, who knows if he's clearly a director also that like understands horror and has been able to demonstrate that he is multifaceted in horror, right? He's a director who. Based on what I've seen of his I'm not expecting him to just do the obvious Hellraiser remake, right? He is the guy that is going to give it his own spin and his own flair and that's a te- more so a testament to like you had said how strong Clive Barker's groundwork is with Hellraiser in that universe and he presents so many variables that still feel taboo Right, I think in a lot of nope. ways even though of course there have been subsequent films that have dabbled in similar things but the Hellraiser still feels Kind of like almost shocking or boundary pushing in the types of stories that you can tell within horror taking it back to like it's not just a slasher right it's dabbling in like noir and there's all of this love angle and love triangle and murdering for your lover and all of these elements that have been a big part of other genres or corners of filmmaking and seeing them so fully encapsulated within this completely demented horror film and the premise and the direction huh. it goes in it's just fantastic it's this it's like handing a director this incredibly fucked up toolbox of just variables to play with and the sky's the limit when you give it to somebody that's super creative
1: we just talked about the the mixture uh and i'm not going to get too specific with this because the movie's newer and i wouldn't spoil anything on my channel uh Mm -hmm. so i wouldn't do it on your podcast um look at what you were talking about with david Bruckner and the night house Uh, i think the night house is quite possibly the most romantic horror film i've ever seen in my life and amazing visuals, uh, yeah. like it's just one of those films that, um, it's funny because it's won awards and I still think it's an underrated film. Absolutely. Because it's that good, so you imagine that creative mind working on a Hellraiser film, you know, mm. like the guy knows how to nail horror romance and the visuals he does, uh, he's not over-reliant on jump scares, he used visuals to scare you uh, I'm very, very excited to see what he can do with a new film. And, and I'm glad you brought up The Night House, man, because I really, really enjoyed that film. That was one of my favorite films of the last year. It was just oh, so fantastic. emotional and so good.
0: I'm so happy to hear you enjoyed that as much as I did, because that was one that, you know, it's the type of thing where a lot of hardcore horror fans and people like you and I that are like, oh, well, I want to experience all types of different horror films, not just yeah. something that has seems familiar to something I've enjoyed in the past. and. That's a movie that I think is so underappreciated, not only just as a horror film itself and like Bruckner's uh, direction with it and everything, but more so like you're getting that phenomenal performance from Rebecca Hall. Um, I did an episode with my friend Kate where we talked about that movie in length and it's such an amazing film on multiple levels. And then if anything, like the horror elements of it are are so well-serviced to that love story, like you had said, in a way that it, makes it so much more haunting in a way that's more memorable than if it was just a straightforward kind of love story um, in a way that it it's able to make the most like morose topic imaginable entertaining in a certain way but again like coming back to like the restraint that that director has in a lot of ways that it he seems perfectly fitting for hellraiser in that yeah Yeah. he's not going to do the obvious thing and just lead with the cenobites because really at the end of the day the cenobites are not necessarily the stars if anything they're nope. the background they're the puppet masters that they come in when they need to to really kind of exemplify what these characters are going through or what they're falling yeah. prey to in their personal lives and whatnot so yeah that's a uh, that's a movie that I could not be more excited for and I'm I'm praying that we still get it this year you know it's right. uh, it's a franchise I would love to see be revitalized or more like Clive Barker's roots be revitalized with somebody as strong as David Bruckner.
1: And it's gonna be amazing too, because um, I feel like David Bruckner is the type of director that would rely more on the practical effects than he would the CGI, Um, especially like you said with the night house, like the way that that movie was shot, the most evil things imaginable are implied, but not seen. Mm-hmm. you know because he didn't want to go over CGI he he wanted to tell the story with what you were seeing he wanted it to be rem- memorable for those reasons and doing that just like Clive did with Hellraiser it's it's gonna I'm my excitement level for this is th- is through the roof
0: yeah i mean i was going to say i think Bruckner has such a great mastery of space and especially with uh, the night house you know it's that house but the way in which he's able to use architecture to convey different emotions and matching sort of where characters are at. I would love to see how he's able to incorporate Hellraiser into it because that's an element of the original film that I was really appreciative of and how, you know, obviously it was probably more to do with like the restraints that came with the budget of the original Hellraiser and his general inexperience in filmmaking that they had that one house and that's where 85% of the movie takes place. But even still, he's able to give a certain amount of atmosphere and just weight to especially like that attic and he's able to use the attic in multiple ways that they feel more more creative i guess than i was expecting from a first-time filmmaker right i mean you get you quite literally go from the floorboards to up top where you see like what julie is doing to these men that she's bringing home and then you see him of course regrowing frank regrowing from that pile of goop and whatnot um and then of course the inevitable uh the house collapsing in on top of itself um which it's such a great use of such a limited space Mm -hmm. that, and I think that's the strength overall of like, the Cenobites in general is that they'll show up anywhere. It doesn't matter where. And so to see how they could be incorporated into like more unique architecture maybe, I think Mm -hmm. that's a really exciting premise for the the future of them and seeing like where they can go.
1: Well, and I love how in this one you get just a tiny glimpse of hell. You know, when she's in the hospital and you get that tiny glimpse of hell and, again they could have overdone that they could have you know spent a lot more time in that area but you know what let's go here let's give you that tease and let's bring it back you know let's bring it right back and now we'll let like Kirsty tell you about frank you know she's gonna save herself by giving you <laughs> the monster so it's just god it's such a perfect film man the older i get the more i just genuinely love this film and it's got your typical clive Barker type score to it you know mm-hmm. to where um when the score is there, you notice. You yeah. know you definitely notice, and the the relationship of the characters, like you even start to watch Julia grow. One of my favorite scenes too is it, you know, nothing horror, nothing at all. It's a total human moment when he's watching the fight. You know, he's watching the boxing mm-hmm. match, and Julia's sitting there watching. He's like, "I thought this stuff made you sick. I thought you couldn't watch this." And she's like, "No, it's all right. You can totally <laughs> tell that you know." Now she's murdering people, so right. now she's just like, eh, "This is okay, I guess. It's just punching." You know, like, right? Just love that human-type moment right there.
0: Well, I think that's, again, a testament to his writing ability in that he understands horror. He understands taboo subject matter and incorporating that into, into a horror uh, narrative and film and whatnot. But he knows how to write people, and he knows yeah. how to write characters and relationships that feel believable. And that really, you know, of course, when they go into the sequels, which are more and more overtly slashers in mm-hmm. focus, they lose that. But when you come back to the first two, it's really his writing that is lifting up, is doing a lot of the heavy lifting because yeah. their relationship, Julia and Larry's relationship. And, you know, a lot of the uh, credit goes to Claire Higgins, and just like her giving Larry dirty looks the, like the entire movie and just yeah. like like punching down on him with just her eyes and just a few words of dialogue. I mean, she really captures what two people that are in two completely different spaces that are stuck with one another under the same roof like. That is very palpable and she brings that tension to every single scene whether or not the Cenobites or there's She's murdering somebody with the claw hammer and whatnot like she is a killer before she even starts killing in a way Yeah, she's just able to completely Demasculate him and just punch down on him at every turn in a way that feels very believable even if maybe somebody hasn't experienced that themselves. like it just comes across as being something that is almost as disturbing, like these people that are stuck in this relationship that's not going anywhere, That's if anything, should be moving away, but they're very clearly trapped within the confines of this, uh, this new home and whatnot.
1: And I think it's funny because I do think, like, obviously when he first tells her to kill him, he's, she's like, I can't, I can't do it. I, so I think that, that that love is still there, but at the same time, it's that mix of love and hate, you know, just, just like the bites themselves pleasure and pain where's the line you know that divide and i i very much and then we got to remember um you know he ends up killing her (laughs) sorry babe you know i don't need you anymore and it's just uh and it's amazing how that leads into the sequel but at that moment when you're watching you're like oh my god dude she literally became a killer for you and you're just like "Eh, shit happens (laughs)
0: yeah, <laughs> they do a really great job of just solidifying how much of a piece of shit Frank is and yeah you know I think that mo- the movie has such a great ending and you mentioned it earlier where he quite literally wears his brother's skin I mean that is such a skin crawling literally uh moment in the film and yes. it's probably one of my favorite bits because it's further just reinforcing like the film's dedication to being as depraved as possible in the best way possible right because they even have the moment where she's very clearly like making out with them and having sex with her lover wearing her dead husband's skin. Like, which is something like so incredibly fucked up. It's the type of thing where how did somebody write that and not like feel revolted. Well, they did because they knew how we would feel about it. Um, (laughs) But it's the type of thing that I don't know. Hellraiser is just a film that stands out because it does so much with so little, you know, as good as the practical effects are as good as, the Cenobite designs are and whatnot. At the end of the day, like, is it doing something that had never been seen before? At that time, not necessarily, but it was doing something that was the most proficient version of what he was setting out to do, because really, nothing had really been done like that before. I mean, you have these demons that, you know, they've got their eyes singed out, or they've got these crazy teeth that are going, or they've got their throat slit open, and they're wearing this, like, S&M leather and stuff, and it's very strange and it's uncomfortable to look at and yet it's horrifying in a way where you almost can't like put your finger on it almost to a certain extent um but yeah no hellraiser is one of those films that you know at every turn it's in service of being its own thing and it's so unapologetic which i find to be really rare again for like a first-time director like he's clearly at this point a competent writer somebody that knows how to tell a horror story, knows how to have it be multi-encompassing in terms of like the different genre influences and whatnot. And yet the film itself is so confident at every turn. It, it shows you these like taboo things that we've mentioned and these horrifying images and whatnot, but it never really shies away from anything in a way that I found to be refreshing and ultimately, you know, memorable these years later.
1: Well, and we got to also talk about how amazing the guy that played Larry is. Because not only did he have to play Larry, he had to play Frank too. Yeah. You know, when he yeah. was in that skin. And I, whenever I see that guy, though, I always think about Colonel Botswick or whatever his name is in Child's Play Three, you know, the guy that's oh, yeah. shaving yeah. the heads. That's the same guy, yeah. you know, like Preston Robinson. Dead. Yeah. <laughs> and it's just like the amazing how he can portray both those characters who are mm-hmm. completely different ends of the spectrum, Frank and Larry. Yeah that guy did an amazing amazing job bringing both those characters to life when he had to play frank as well
0: that was something that was really surprising to me other than you know the again like the fantastic practical work to pull that off and whatnot you can see that especially when christy scratches his cheek and his face starts to come apart and whatnot and you can start to see the seams of where he wrapped his brother's skin around his head but he doesn't miss a beat in portraying frank you know from his mannerisms To Literally quite literally what he's saying where he's like come to daddy and all these incestuous creepy lines and saying to his niece He doesn't miss a beat though in portraying that because that was a switch that could have came off as being very kind of Goofy or hammy if he doesn't nail that exactly right. I mean you obviously know it's the same actor, but in the moment it you almost forget for a second because he's so perfectly portraying Frank in a way that just makes that entire sequence that much more disturbing, and you know, furthermore, Barker's ability to just the inclusion, or rather, the meeting of the taboo with horror, and all these things that make this perfect, uh, perfect body horror cocktail. That yeah, you know, again, like I said, over the years and revisiting it, I've just gotten a greater appreciation for it, and mm-hmm. especially like Doug Bradley, again, like playing Pinhead, just so few lines of dialogue, and doesn't do much. You know, he very all of them don't do much other than chatter i don't think any of the other cenobites really touch anybody or anything like that but they do so much with so little and like every it it very clearly feels like a writer wrote this movie right in terms of like somebody that came from the novel side of things or the novella side of things and understood the importance of like less is more because that's why we all know pinhead to this day and that's why obviously he spawned nine or ten sequels that you know, maybe they don't necessarily live up to the original. And that's probably being too generous. Almost <laughs> um, varying quality. Yeah, we'll put it nicely. But <laughs> I mean, there's a reason that Pinhead's iconic past just the way he looks, yeah. because like you had said, yeah, he's got a unique look, but there are other Cenobites that are more terrifying looking than him or more unique even. But it's more about Doug Bradley's performance, I think, and just, you know, It's clear also that he was somebody that came from the theater side of things because he puts the right emphasis on every single line that he says, and that's why they're memorable all these years later.
1: Yeah, and that's another huge thing, something you just said that is you could sum up Hellraiser as less is more. And that could have been the tagline in this movie, you know, not (laughs) he'll tear your soul apart. It could have been less is more because every aspect of this movie is a less is more, except for... The Body Horror Elements, which, thank God, we got a lot of that. But, you know, um, even though it's a a weird title, but his the Cenobites is, you know, the lead Cenobite and his gash is what they're called. (laughs) Um, But, my God, like, every time you hear that baritone voice of Doug Bradley, you're, you're frozen. You have to listen to exactly what he's saying. And that is, he... I've talked about this often. If I was going to war and I could take five villains with me, the first one that I'm picking is Pinhead. He has (laughs) the ultimate power, you know? And he's just, when you watch him with the lament configuration, like... I want this back. It's time for your ultimate pain or your ultimate pleasure. Don't cry. It's a waste of good, uh, you know, sorrow. Like, Mm -hmm. Oh my God, this guy is so dark and evil (laughs) and romantic almost like even him, like the, the pain and pleasure aspect of it is just, Mm -hmm. I I agree with you. I think that if this would have been, you know, more of a straight slasher, it might not have continued on the way it was. I think the mystery of the Cenobites is a huge reason this was so successful.
0: Yeah. I mean, Pinhead's really v- like the hellish version or hellish interpretation of like Shakespeare, right? In mm-hmm. the way that every single thing that he says is poetic and romanticized. But when you actually look at what he's saying or what is being implied and what he's saying, like it's horrific, it's more horrific than you can <laughs> even understand. And I think that, you know, that's one element that I think Hellbound Heart, the novella, does really well at conveying that in terms of like just the full extent of what that is and what that does to a person but in revisiting the movie and you know learning that like they had to make extensive cuts because of the MPAA which is no surprise in terms of yeah, shocker. you know if this is what we got and then thinking about like what Clive Barker is capable of in terms of like the limits that he's willing to push and go to um, if anything i think that more gore might have actually stepped on what the film does so well. And that's to your point, right? I think that this movie does a great job of really reveling in the mysticism of, or the mystery behind the Cenobites and what that really means. Cause, and it's something that I'm hoping, and I would assume Bruckner doesn't try to delve too much into less explaining and more giving us the horrifying results of something that is still very vague and unknown. If anything, you know, reading um, the novella and rewatching the movie, it makes me not want to read any more about the Cenobites. And because I know that he's done multiple other books that delve into their history and everything, but I don't really want that because based on just the first film alone or the first two films, really you can start to create your own narratives almost of like, well, if this is what they're doing here, imagine what they've been doing for centuries to people maybe weren't as strong-willed as somebody like Frank that was able to escape. Like, imagine what those fates are of uh, the people that couldn't escape, or the Cenobites that came before them that might have even been more horrific, and these are the Cenobites that had learned from the mistakes of others, or something like that. But yeah, there's such a wide swath of possibilities that are introduced with so little, but what's there is unapologetic and damning in a way that I think eludes some of the other icons out there, horror icons out there, um, in a way that, you know, isn't to say one is better than the other, but it just, it does horror in a way that is so wholly unique and doesn't feel like something that came before it in, some, right. in a lot of ways. Well, and something we brought up in
1: the beginning is that they're so vague, in fact, that they don't name any of them in the first film. Like obviously we're mm-hmm. small, so, chatterer, you know, Butterball, Pinhead, like we know that now. But when that first film came out, They didn't even have names. They were just the Cenobites. Yeah, we didn't know what where they came from, their backstories. We don't need to know that. All we need to know is right here and right now. And I think you're absolutely right. That's a big, big part of the future sequels. That was kind of a bummer. Trying to get to the backstory of where they came from and why they are who they are. I don't care (laughs) why they are they are. You know, like they're evil demons. You know, are demons to some and angels to others. I apologize but that's the the mystic, like the the mystery of Mm. that makes it that much more intriguing to me.
0: Yeah, and I think that, you know, at the end of the day, if they tried to explain that in the sequels, well, guess who's not writing the sequels? Clive Barker. So whatever kind of explanation they come up with, if anything, it's probably just a bad interpretation of something that he's already written or, or, or rather a perversion of something that he's written. But yeah, so I guess in, rounding rounding out um, I'm curious like your experiences with the sequels you have said that and I think at this point if we've said that there have been ten sequels we can kind of guess the quality of some of the other ones down the line but um, it sounds like the second film is your favorite sequel but it sounds like maybe it's your favorite film in the series as well
1: it is yep I think the second one and I think a big part of that is uh, the body horror gets taken up a notch in the second one Ashley Lawrence gets taken up a notch in the second one. we get a lot more Kirstie, Um and it's still about the main characters more than it is the cenobites. We get to, we get a new cenobite in here, we see how cenobites are created in the second one, which is dope, but we don't get that much of a backstory on. It. Like this is it. This is what how this one just got created. And after that, Hellraiser 3 Hell on Earth really starts the slasher era of Pinhead, which I still like Hellraiser 3. I like I like 1 through 5 a lot actually. Um after five, I feel like it's not as good. You know, I'll, I'll be nice. But I own them all still. You know, I've watched every single one. But, you know, and even like the later ones, like when you lose Doug Bradley as Pinhead and you can recast someone as Pinhead, it right. just it didn't do it for me. Um, And and obviously, you know, oh, well, they're, they recast someone else. Well, I love the fact that they have a female coming in to play Pinhead. In the new film i'm excited to see how that works uh yeah because like i said i watched the other ones even though i knew it wasn't doug bradley i gave it a chance and it's just like when you recast freddy krueger it just doesn't work for me doug bradley mm-hmm. was and is always pinhead for me so we'll see what happens in the new one but i'm definitely going to go in with an open mind but for the people that have not seen hellraiser 2 because i know there's a lot of people that see the first one is being so iconic and so amazing why would i watch anymore i really feel like hellraiser 2 much like the exorcist 3. May not be the scariest in the franchise, but it's definitely my favorite. Sometimes the sequels can add on to what we've loved so much and bring so much more to it. So I can't recommend Hellraiser 2 enough. Hell on Earth for people, or no, uh, Hellraiser 2 is hell- Hellbound. No.
0: Is it Hellbound? I believe so, yeah. Yeah. I know
1: Hellraiser 3 is Hell on Earth. So Hellraiser hell 2 is Earth. Hellbound. But, you know, and you get a lot of the same returning characters in hellraiser 2 and seeing a lot of the body horror that comes along with julia in hellraiser 2 is so good and you like i know we're not really talking about hellraiser 2 but the guy that thinks that, like the guy that thinks he has the bugs in his skin and from the mental hospital and they give him the straight razor and he's just cutting through his skin because he thinks he's getting the bugs out of him Uh and then that blood (laughs) soaks into the mattress and brings julia back like oh my god it's so good so good how it stayed with the formula that worked for the first one we're going to give you a little bit more of the Cenobite, so we're going to let them talk a little bit more but we're still going to be focused on our human characters in this one that's the big reason uh hellbound worked for me
0: yeah so i need to revisit that one definitely because i think i back in the day i watched the first two back to back and like i said they weren't necessarily for me but in having a reappreciation appreciation for or a newfound appreciation for Hellraiser, I definitely want to go back and watch Hellbound Hellraiser 2, just because of all the things you've said. And I mean, one of my criticisms of the original would be that there wasn't enough Ashley Lawrence. Actually, I was a little taken aback by how she plays sort of in the background for a majority of that movie up until the finale. And so to hear there's obviously more of an emphasis on her, but also leaning more into the body horror element and getting a little bit more out of the Cenobites. And yet they're not used in a way that feels like a disservice to the human counterparts right. or to the, the people that aren't interdimensional beings of uh, pain and pleasure and whatnot. The, the main
1: villains are still Julia and Frank and our main That's heroine terrific. is still Ashley Lawrence. So it, it, it works. And even when they go to the hell dimension in Hellbound, it works. You know, it's not just a fiery pit. You know, it all makes sense. And yeah, Hellbound is definitely easily my favorite in the whole franchise. But that doesn't take we don't get hellbound if it's not for Hellraiser. So I, I do have such a love and appreciation for that film. And um what I love about Hellbound, my favorite scene in the whole film is when you have the the corpse pointing at the wall and it's written on the wall, oh, I'm in hell. Yeah. You know, like that. <laughs> yeah like that's just such a great scene like oh my god like it still gives me chills when i watch that scene like thinking of your father being in hell and you have to save him mm. just to find out that that's not what's really going on no obviously <laughs> right. not gonna get too spoiler because i can't wait for you to revisit it let me know what you think but yeah yeah absolutely. i i you need to text me right after you watch it let me know what you thought of it i'm really excited to see what your thoughts are on hellbound now that we're a little bit more more mature <laughs> yeah.
0: Not not too mature, but mature enough to uh, appreciate some of the elements uh, that went over our heads as kids. But yeah. it was funny you mentioned um, that you own all the sequels because I just bought there's some DVD pack that has like eight of the sequels on there. I think it's three through whatever yep. they're up to. Um, so I haven't watched any of those yet because I haven't obviously revisited two yet. But for the podcast, I started doing just I've only done it once so far, but I plan to do it in the future i do uh, a movie commentary called fears and beers where i have beers and then i record a commentary if there was one of the sequels other than the first three that is let's say nicely one of the lesser sequels that would make for probably a fun commentary to like roast a little bit uh which one do you think stands out as being uh without saying the worst
1: (laughs) I want to say it's either six or seven, because they kind of blend together for me after a while. But the, the one <laughs> Understandable. where you get the, the, the pinheaded space, it might be either five or six, um, because it's it's still a decent enough film. But it, it's over the top enough to where you'll have a few beers and definitely have a couple chuckles with it, man.
0: Awesome. Because I know there's one where they go to the internet. So I'm yeah. I'm waiting to get to that one as well.
1: Yeah. But I have that same set as you did. I have one and two on Blu-ray, and then the three through whatever on DVD. And then I have the very last one, Revelations or whatever. I got that one on DVD as well. But um, yeah, I agree with you, man. Like that's, it's a great set. I wish there was a little bit more on the special feature side, but you know, it's it's got the whole set in it. It was like, what, 20 bucks or something for the whole set? Like, yeah.
0: Yeah, if that. Well, that's the thing too. Like I would always obviously want more special features and all these things, but it's getting to the point where and you know this is my soapbox a little bit where it's like physical media is like yeah if i want to spend 12 bucks they're movies i might not watch for the next five years or whatever but at the end of the day like if i ever want to watch them they're there and they're on dvd and i'm not one of those people that is necessarily like a big like the best quality i have to it's like i have it and it's there and if i get the inclination to check it out i'll check it out i don't have to be reliant on a streaming service or buying a digital version of something and then i go back to it five years later the terms of service have changed and it's no longer there or something like that
1: and i think where me and you are the same here is if it's a franchise like Hellraiser, where I like the first couple, and then the rest are just okay, why wouldn't I buy it in a box set where I did, why would I spend the extra money for a movie that I really don't care that much about? Now, <laughs> right, yeah. know, like now, like I said, The Exorcist three, I went all out. Got the 4K version of that, because that's my favorite film in the franchise. House, I own the VHS, the Blu-ray, the DVD, like these movies mean that much to me that I wanna have them. But if I have a huge franchise, like, like the Leprechaun franchise, Fuck that franchise. I hate that, <laughs> you know, like, but I, I'm doing a franchise ranking on it, so I had to go buy it. So I literally found all the movies, except for the last one, Resurrection, which is like the best one in the franchise, um, on DVD for 10 bucks at Walmart. Why wouldn't I spend 10 bucks on a franchise that I really don't give that much shit about, you know? Right. So I, I definitely agree with you there. I, I got them for when I want to watch them if I need to do an episode or something on them, but I'm not going to go out and spend $25 on each <laughs> individual film when I'm not a big fan of the quality of the film.
0: Yeah. And also, like, who needs special features for Hellraiser 7? Like, let's be honest, I haven't seen right. it, but I can't imagine there's a lot of insight into that that uh, hey. you can't really get from just watching it. <laughs> but no, yeah, I, I guess that's you and I having similar sentiment on film and just, you know, media collection things in general is why I said at the beginning, like, you and I are very much cut from the same cloth in terms of horror and uh, things of that liking. And that's why I always have such a great time chatting with you uh, about horror and the like. Cause, it's always a pleasure to uh, pick your brain on horror, and you know you've inspired me now to go back and give Hellraiser uh, or Hellbound: Hellraiser two another revisit, and then diving into some of those sequels that have been on my shelf for uh, the last few years. Dude, I, I seriously can't wait to
1: to know what you think about. Hell- I'm either gonna get the dude you were right, or dude, what the hell were you talking about?
0: <laughs> no, I don't. Th- I don't think you'll get the later, just because <laughs> I I trust your opinion on movies, and I mean the things that you've mentioned about. Being the elements of the sequel to stand out to you are exactly what I love about the original. And if anything, to hear they lean more into that, you know, maybe it doesn't, I don't end up liking it more than the original, but it leaning into those elements more, I can't see myself not getting more of an appreciation for it. And, you know, like you said, Ashley Lawrence gets more billing in this, which is terrific because I thought she was underutilized in the original. So Mm -hmm. to see that she is more prominent in this one. Um, is really, really great. And, you know, like you said, the antagonists from the original are once again the antagonists. So I love that, you know, if anything, I don't know the time frame between the first and the second, but it sounds like it's almost as if it were the night of type of a sequel, right? It's not necessarily, maybe, maybe there's a, a week or some time in between, but like it is very much a setup from a lot of the different characters of the original film, which is something that I love in slasher sequels.
1: And like i said in this one you get to watch a new Cenobite get made which becomes the big bad in this movie actually i'm not gonna spoil anything but um you see how this centibite is created and how it becomes the big bad of this film and um, yeah ashley lawrence is just she's a national treasure man everything she does is gold and i'm very excited to hopefully i've heard some rumblings about her making a cameo in the new hellraiser so let's oh, keep our fingers awesome. crossed that something like that would happen
0: Fingers crossed. Um, But in the meantime, why don't you let people know where they can find you and all of your amazing content? Because, you know, I, like, honestly, I'm a huge fan of everything that you do. I was saying this to the beginning before uh, we were recording, like the amount of content you pump out and the range of people that you talk to about horror, I think, is the way that A lot of like I think horror discussion should be right. You're talking to people that are not only directors, actors, writers, but you're talking to people that are just general fans. They're people that are whether it be like musicians, like our buddy Josh Shepard, who's a huge horror fan who doesn't make horror, but he's been a lifelong horror fan, talking about his insight into horror and what he likes about it. And you know, you're talking to podcasters and content creators and talented people out there that they go to work every day for the nine to five, and then they spend until God knows what hour in the morning, making content about movies and things that they love. So why don't you tell the people where they can find some of your content?
1: Yeah, so um, social media, just Sledgehammer Horror uh, on Instagram, Sledgehammer Horror, H-O-R on Twitter, uh, Sledgehammer Horror on Facebook, and then YouTube.com slash Sledgehammer Horror. And uh, you're right, man, I just, my thing is I grew up in a video store and I just love horror. I don't care who it is, I don't, ever look at somebody and go oh i wonder how many subscribers or followers this person has before i ask him to come on the podcast and talk about their first horror movie or whatnot and um it's just a genuine love of horror and i think that's why it works you know um th- there are a lot of people that you watch do these things and you just feel like oh uh, they they don't really give a shit that's not genuine but when you have real horror fans that really love the genre i feel like that's what you gravitate you gravitate to do because um we love horror you know, you and I, like you said, we grew up the same, man. And we, you, can, you can really tell when somebody doesn't give a shit and when someone does. So that's why anytime you've ever wanted to work together, it's been a pleasure. We've worked together on My First Core Movie. Uh, we've done episodes on your podcast. We've done live episodes on the channel, Counting Down Our Top Ten, Nightmare on Elm Street Kills. Mm-hmm. Like every time we get to work together, I feel like it's more and more informative about who you are and, we just have a blast man I can't wait till we have you back on the channel again
0: absolutely you know I'm always uh, I'm always willing to chat horror with you my friend so thank yeah. you again for your time this was a pleasure and uh, thank you for sharing your love of horror with us all
1: anytime brother
0: thank you for listening to another episode of daily horror habit you can follow the show on Twitter at daily horror pod or give me a follow at not funny Jay. thanks again for listening and I'll see you guys next week